The Supreme Court recently heard an absolutely critical case about the separation of powers. It is hardly overstatement to say that what the court decides will determine whether we live in a representative constitutional republic or an elected unitary dictatorship. The case is Biden versus Nebraska, and it's all about President Biden's completely unconstitutional plan to unilaterally cancel nearly half a trillion dollars in student loan debt. Then, in our Behind the Headlines segment, Tennessee enacts two laws protecting children from the horrors of the transgender agenda. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot loses her bid for re-election, and Hershey's Chocolate Company celebrates and highlights and uses a gender-confused man to promote International Women's Day. I'm Doug Wardlow, and this is Founding Principles. It is time to go on offense. This is Founding Principles with Doug Wardlow. The Supreme Court recently heard oral arguments in one of the most important separation of powers cases in decades. The name of the case is Biden versus Nebraska, and at issue is the Biden administration's massive student loan debt cancellation program. The implications of this case go far, far beyond Joe Biden's ludicrous $430 billion scheme to cancel student debts. If the Supreme Court were to get this one wrong, it would basically, basically mean that there are no effective checks on presidential or executive authority going forward. It would severely damage Congress's ability to control the nation's finances, and it would amount to a huge transfer of power from the people's elected representatives in Congress to the president and the army of unelected bureaucrats that make up the administrative state. So, there is a lot riding on the outcome of this case. Let's start with a bit of important background. The plaintiffs in this case are six states, led by Nebraska and Missouri, that sued President Biden and the Department of Education seeking an injunction to stop President Biden and his administration from implementing Biden's plan to cancel $430 billion of student loan debt. The plaintiff states have two central arguments. First, they argue that the student loan debt cancellation plan violates the separations of powers because the Biden administration lacks statutory authority to implement the plan. And second, they argue that the plan violates the Administrative Procedures Act because the plan is arbitrary and capricious. Now, at the trial court level, the judge ruled that the six plaintiff states lacked standing to bring the appeal. In other words, the trial court judge held that there is no concrete injury to the states that could be fixed or remedied by the court, and thus, he said, the six plaintiff states couldn't bring their lawsuit. They didn't have standing. The plaintiff states appealed that ruling to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Eighth Circuit correctly held that the lower court got the question of standing wrong. The Eighth Circuit, in ruling that the lawsuit could go forward, looked closely at the state of Missouri. Now, Missouri set up an agency called the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, or MOHILA for short. MOHILA services student loans, and MOHILA's revenues would decrease substantially if Biden's program is allowed to go forward, because, it, because a large number of the loans that MOHILA services, well, they would be canceled. So the Biden debt cancellation program threatens to cause direct harm to MOHILA. In addition, Mohila is required by law to contribute part of its revenues to another state fund that pays for capital projects at state colleges and universities. So the injury that Mohila would suffer as a result of the Biden student, debt, Biden, Biden student debt scheme would also impact Mohila's ability to contribute to that fund, resulting in an injury to Missouri's state colleges and universities. So for these reasons, the Eighth Circuit found that the state of Missouri is indeed threatened with injury by the Biden student debt plan, and therefore the state of Missouri has standing to bring the lawsuit. The Eighth Circuit then granted a nationwide injunction blocking the implementation of Biden's program pending appeal. The Biden administration was quite displeased that the Eighth Circuit blocked his plan to unilaterally wipe out nearly half a trillion dollars in student loan debt, and so Biden sought review of the Eighth Circuit's determination by appealing it to the Supreme Court. 
Briefs were filed by both sides at the Supreme Court, as well as a significant number of amici, or friends of the court, and the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on February 28th. Now, at oral arguments, Justice Roberts and the five conservative justices on the court appeared very skeptical of the Biden administration's arguments. The arguments put forward by the states are quite strong, and it appears to me that the states have a very good probability of winning. That's mainly because it is very true that Biden's student debt cancellation program has zero basis in statute. Congress never granted Biden the authority to do this. Biden simply usurped and stole Congress's legislative power. Now, the Biden administration argues that the Secretary of Education has authority to enact the student loan cancellation program under the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act, that is the HEROES Act. The HEROES Act gives the Education Secretary the authority to, quote, waive or modify federal student loan programs for the purpose of preventing harm to borrow borrowers in the case of a national emergency. Well, what national emergency, you might ask? Well, the COVID pandemic, of course. You see, in the Biden administration's view, all the president has to do is invoke the magic words COVID pandemic, and he gets unlimited power. That's not really how things work. Let's look at the statutory text. The HEROES Act permits the Secretary of Education to, quote, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to student loan financial assistance programs when it's necessary in connection with a national emergency or necessary to ensure that recipients of student financial assistance who are affected individuals are not placed in a worse position financially in relation to that financial assistance because of their status as affected individuals. That's a bunch of words, but to sum that up, under the HEROES Act, the Education Secretary can, quote, waive or modify statutory or regulatory provisions for the purpose of preventing borrowers from falling into a worse position with respect to their student loans as a result of the national emergency. But that doesn't mean that the Secretary has the power to put just about every single borrower in a much better position by suddenly eliminating their debt entirely, particularly when the national emergency really had no impact on a huge number of borrowers. It's clear from the statutory text, therefore, that the HEROES Act does not give the Biden administration the power to enact his ludicrous and unfair student debt cancellation program. Here's another reason supporting that conclusion. The Secretary's power under the HEROES Act limits the Secretary to quote, waiving or modifying statutory or regulatory provisions. But that's not what the Biden administration is doing. They aren't waiving any provisions of law or regulation related to student financial programs. And creating a brand new massive debt cancellation program goes far, far beyond modifying provisions. What's more, the student loan debt cancellation program was announced two and a half years after the COVID pandemic began. If the cancellation uh, debt cancellation plan was truly a measure necessary to prevent harm due to an emergency, one would think that the administration would have acted much more quickly. But they didn't. The fact of the matter is, the Biden administration is using the pandemic as an excuse to shoehorn a huge, politically motivated Biden giveaway program into the HEROES Act. But it just doesn't fit. And without the HEROES Act for camouflage, we see clearly what's really going on here. The president has basically appointed himself as a super legislator and is attempting to pass laws, a huge new program, all on his own, without Congress. Under our Constitution, that's just not allowed. And judging from some of the questions coming from Chief Justice Roberts and some of the other more conservative members of the court during oral arguments, things are looking pretty good. In particular, the justice focused, justices focused quite a bit on what's called the Major Questions Doctrine. Under the Major Questions Doctrine, the court views with skepticism any attempt to claim that Congress delegated to the executive branch a policy decision of significant economic or political magnitude. If the claimed delegated power involves a major economic or political policy question, 
then the court is going to presume that Congress intends to make those decisions itself, not leave those huge policy decisions for a bunch of unelected bureaucrats at an agency. When those kinds of questions arise, the court will only uphold a delegation of authority to the executive branch from Congress if it is very clear from the text of the statute that that is exactly the result that Congress intended by enacting the statute in question. And in this case, it's pretty clear from the statute that Congress did not intend for the HEROES Act to give the Education Secretary the authority to create a brand new, massive, extremely politically and economically significant $430 billion student loan debt cancellation program. So let's listen to a bit of what Justice Roberts had to say about the major questions doctrine during oral arguments. Congress uh, acted or not was a factor that we considered in the major questions doctrine. And uh, the way we considered it uh, is whether or not the issue uh, that was before the court is something that had been seriously considered and debated and was a matter of political controversy before Congress. Um, That certainly is the case here, right? That's right. We're not disputing that this is a politically significant action. But if you're not just a politically significant action, but one that has the attention of Congress, the fact that it hasn't acted under the major questions doctrine, but has considered the matter, uh, we cited a support for the notion that maybe it should be one for Congress. If you're talking about this in the abstract, I think most casual observers would say, if you're going to give up that much amount of money, if you're going to affect the obligations of that many Americans on a subject that's of great controversy, they would think that's something for Congress to act on. And if they haven't acted on it, then maybe that's a good lesson to say for the a president or, or the um, uh, administrative bureaucracy, that maybe that's not something they should undertake on their own. Justice Roberts, for once, is exactly right. Maybe, just maybe, because Congress, being aware of the policy issues surrounding student debt, did not pass a law canceling nearly half a trillion dollars in outstanding student debt. Well, that just might indicate that the executive branch shouldn't go ahead and do it all by themselves. Huge policy questions that affect hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars ought to be decided by Congress, not by the president and his unelected bureaucrat minions. That's what the Constitution requires. Laws and major policy questions are to be decided by Congress. If we let the president make massive policy choices on his own, then Congress no longer has a role, and there is really no point in in electing congressmen at all. Under the Biden administration's view, Congress is meant to serve only a rubber stamp or maybe a veto function. But that's wrong. It gets the Constitution exactly backwards. Now, here's another related reason this case is extremely important. The Constitution provides that only Congress has the power of the purse. Only Congress has the power to appropriate money. What Biden is doing with his student debt cancellation scheme amounts to appropriating $430 billion to cover and cancel student loan debts. And Biden is trying to do that without any authority from Congress. He's essentially trying to appropriate and spend nearly half a trillion dollars without any input or authority from the branch of government that has exclusive control over the nation's finances. If Biden can get away with that, then there really is no check on presidential or executive authority going forward. Justice Thomas focused on this point during the oral arguments when he was questioning U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Elizabeth Proliger. Let's listen. Just uh, briefly, uh, there's some uh, discussion in the briefs that um, going past which this provision or that modification or waiver, that this is in effect a cancellation of a debt. That's really what we're talking about. And that as a cancellation of $400 billion in debt, uh, in effect, this is a grant of $400 billion. And it runs headlong into Congress's uh, appropriations authority. And I'd like to give you 
some time to uh, respond to that. Sure. And and so first, I want to take on the argument that some amici have made in this case about implicating appropriations authority. Of course, implementing this program doesn't require that any money be drawn from the Treasury. And so I don't think that it strictly raises an appropriations issue, which is why I think the states aren't raising that argument here. Well, of course, canceling debt doesn't require an appropriation from Congress. But telling thousands upon thousands of people who owe money to the government that they don't have to pay it anymore, well, that's essentially making grants to all of those people. So Justice Thomas is correct. Biden's student debt cancellation program does, in fact, run headlong into Congress's exclusive control over appropriations. If Biden can get away with such a massive interference with Congress's authority to control the nation's purse, then we can't really say we're living in a constitutional republic and future presidents will be able to run roughshod over the will of the people as expressed through their elected representatives. Fortunately, it appears, at least judging from the oral arguments, that the Biden administration is pretty likely to lose this one. And it's very important that they do. We should not be wholesale canceling student loan debt. That's a simple question of fairness. What we should really be working on is the ever-increasing cost of higher education, but that's a topic for a future episode. What's important here is the principle that Congress makes laws, not the president. Our Constitution separates the legislative, judicial, and executive powers of government for a specific reason. When you combine those three powers in one person or entity, then you have absolute power and absolute corruption. When one person or entity can make the laws, carry the laws into effect, and sit as the judge on disputes involving those laws— Well, that's the very definition of tyranny. And that appears to be exactly where the radical leftists and the Biden administration want us to end up. So I am very hopeful that the Supreme Court will put an end to this madness, declare Biden's student loan debt cancellation program unconstitutional and illegal, and prevent Biden and future presidents from stealing the lawmaking power away from the people's elected representatives in Congress. And now it's time for Behind the Headlines. If you like the content that we're providing, please go ahead and like the video, subscribe to the channel. Doing those things helps us immensely. Now for behind the headlines, first up today, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee signed a bill protecting children from the transgender agenda. The bill outlaws so-called gender transition treatments for children, including double mastectomies, chemical castration, and puberty blockers. Tennessee also passed another piece of legislation that bans adults from dressing up as the opposite sex in public, anywhere in public or or near where children could see it if their intent is to uh, put on some kind of purient or sexually suggestive display. So this is very good legislation, absolutely excellent news. But I'm already hearing some of our more moderate wimpy friends on the right protesting that this is big government censorship. They are saying that if we legislate against so-called trans rights, then the left will come after the religious right. Well, that's absolutely preposterous for a number of reasons. First of all, there is no such thing as trans rights. How can I say that, you might ask? Well, a person doesn't have a status of trans. No one is actually a trans person. A person who claims to be trans is just a person who is confused about their gender and is masquerading as a member of the opposite sex. A person doesn't get to have a special set of rights just because they're pretending to be something that they are not. On top of that, no one has a right to have a doctor help them mutilate their own body. Body. That's just not a thing. That's not a right. People who claim to have trans, uh, trans, to to be trans, of course, do have rights. They just have exactly the same rights as everyone else and nothing more, nothing additional. Second, the left has already launched an unfortunately quite effective campaign against Christianity. 
They've banned schools from teaching the Bible, they've forbidden prayer in schools, and they are replacing Christianity with their weird pseudo-religion based on basically the sin of pride. They are actively promoting sinful behavior in every sphere of public life. And third, protecting kids and preserving the institution of the nuclear family is a basic function of government. These are staple necessary components of the conservative worldview. We must protect families and protect children. Conservatives are not anarchists. Government power must be limited, but it needs to be exercised toward proper ends, like protecting natural rights, keeping the peace, protecting children, preventing child abuse, and preserving the basic institutions of society. Chemical castration and so-called sex change surgeries, when performed on kids, well, that constitutes child abuse. That's absolutely true. And drag shows involve sexually suggestive and explicit displays that have no place in polite society, let alone in the view of children. So the new laws in Tennessee are properly aimed at stopping child abuse and protecting kids, plain and simple. So good job, Tennessee. Let's hope many other states quickly follow suit. And let's hope it's not too late to save our kids and our culture from the destructive madness of the transgender agenda. Second up today, Hershey's chocolate has gone woke. What an insane, upside-down world we are living in. First, the M&M company decides to make the green M&M genderless. Now, Hershey's has decided to come out on the wrong side of the culture war once again with its celebration of International Women's Day. Of course, now International Women's Day isn't just a day. The leftist's liturgical calendar has expanded that celebration from a single day to an entire month. International Women's Month, essentially. So this must be a month where we all get to celebrate noteworthy and consequential women like Jean Kirkpatrick and Phyllis Schlafly and Marjorie Taylor Greene, Margaret Thatcher, Betsy Ross, right? Just kidding. No, of course not. International Women's Day, and month apparently, has Marxist origin origins, of course. It's international just like the communist international. Indeed, International Women's Day was made a national holiday by the communists in Soviet Russia following the beginning of the February Revolution in 1917 and it has been celebrated by communist countries and socialists wor socialist worldwide ever since. So this is a communist holiday. It's a huge sham. It's a vehicle for leftist propaganda. It always has been. So in honor, honor of this communist International Women's Day and month in the leftist liturgical calendar, Hershey's has rolled out a campaign in Canada that promotes a new employee who is queer, feminist, and trans, a trans woman. That is to say, a gender-confused man suffering from what, from what everyone used to call five minutes ago, gender identity disorder. There's some top level irony for you. In Hershey's celebration of women, they are promoting a man. The left's inclusiveness often hurts groups that, they, that, that truly need protection. So-called trans inclusiveness is no different. I mean, take women's sports. Until we curtail the madness of the transgender agenda, we will continue to see men who claim to be women dominating women's sports. Real women who have worked their whole lives to get good at a sport will be bested by their male counterparts who have a physical advantage over them and shouldn't be competing against them at all. Simply put, protecting women means opposing the transgender agenda. This is not an issue where you can play both sides. Third up today, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is out as mayor. Lori Lightfoot didn't receive enough votes in the recent mayoral primary election to continue to the runoff. Not surprisingly, Lightfoot blames discrimination against her race and gender for her loss, even though Chicago has a very large black population and a female majority population. It would be good for Lightfoot to honestly reflect on why she failed to win a re-election, but let's be honest, she's not going to do that. Chicago, like most of our big cities, is the most dangerous city. It is very dangerous. It's actually the most dangerous city out of all of our very big, dangerous cities. 
rogue Soros-backed prosecutors who are soft on crime refuse to prosecute criminals and create a dangerous cycle of arrest and release. Rob a liquor store? You'll probably be out in two weeks and ready to rob another one. Refusing to prosecute crime creates a downward spiral of criminality and violence. Mayor Lightfoot's loss is the result of a combination of radical far-left policies that have destroyed her city, plus her elitist attitude. Many of our urban and suburban centers are struggling with crime and corruption, but they are also struggling with a spiritual battle. The I'm better than you attitude is unfortunately very common amongst both elected leaders and a lot of the smug, virtue-signaling, left-leading citizens that are out there. Communities once built upon faith and family are now areas that have adopted an informal credit score of sorts that prizes various leftist traits over everything else, intersectional traits. Perhaps people are starting to get sick of leftist elitism. Perhaps Lightfoot's loss is an example of citizens rejecting these kinds of politicians and their smug sense of self. But since we're talking about Chicago, I'm not getting my hopes up too high. Both candidates who are heading to the runoff, of course, are Democrats, and one is an extremely far-left socialist lunatic. Now it's time to answer a question from our audience. If you'd like to submit a question and have me answer it on the show, go ahead and drop it in the comment section, or you can email it to the address in the show description. Today, our question comes from Bill in Rochester, Minnesota, who asks, Communist China has been stealing technology for years from us, and they are a huge threat to our country. Why are we still trading with them at all? Well, that's a really good question, Bill. You are absolutely correct. The Chinese Communist Party is the biggest threat to America, Taiwan, and the entire free world. In terms of trade, the Chinese government has indeed been stealing our technology in a number of different ways for years and years. They've also been targeting our domestic manufacturing industries for destruction. Take the steel industry, for example. For many years, China has been artificially propping up its many huge state-owned steel producers, encouraging them to churn out massive quantities of steel at cheap, below-market subsidized prices with the intent of undercutting American domestic steel producers and driving them out of business. You know, and, and that's in a strategy they've been using to undercut our manufacturing sector in general. You know, and if you can't produce steel domestically, well, then you can't build tanks and aircraft carriers without support from outside other countries internationally either. So this is a very important issue. It's not just about economics and trade. It's about national defense and national security. So you're absolutely right. We need to restrict trade with China. Their export-driven economy will suffer greatly if the U.S. market is closed off to them, and the pressure from the Chinese people for regime change will grow. It's the best way to drive the CCP from power. How do we do it? Well, as Senator Ben Cotton recently suggested, we should start by revoking China's most favored nation trade status. Most favored nation status essentially means that the country with that status cannot be treated any less advantageously as any other one of our trading partners. China has had that status for over 20 years now, and they've been abusing it. While we give them unfettered access to our markets, they violate WTO trade rules left and right. They've been taking advantage of us. It was a mistake to let China into the WTO and to give them permanent normalized trade relations. We need to end that permanent status, deny them most favored nation status, and then levy punitive tariffs on broad swaths of Chinese exports. We need to do everything possible to punish the Chinese Communist Party for their brutality, isolate them internationally, stop them from taking advantage of our country, and push them out of power. 
Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like the content that we are providing, please go ahead and like this video, subscribe to our channel, drop a comment down into the comment section. Doing each one of those things helps us immensely. It helps us grow the show and multiply its impact. And be sure to tune in next time for Founding Principles with Doug Wardlow.